Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann, and today we're lucky to be joined by Taze Ren. How you doing, Taze? Hey, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone at home. How are you doing? <laughs> no, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Really, really appreciate it. It's an honor. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, so for the audience, actually, and we were just talking off air, like how, how do we get into contact with each other? And uh, it's actually through a, an upcoming talk that you're going to be doing at the PHP UK conference. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute, but really kind of the topics around it, you know, is something that's very much hot on my radar at the moment. And I thought, who better than you, you know, you've got a talk in, the, in mind, you know, you're going to be doing a talk at the UK conference. And, uh, you know, who's better to have a chat with than you? So, would you mind giving the audience a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My name is Thijs Hurin. I'm a, a 34-year-old Belgian, Dutch-speaking Belgian. I do a lot of uh, talking. I do a lot of presentations at events. And every now and then, I end up at the PHP UK conference in London. Uh, because I'm uh, basically in the PHP community. That's how I started out. And uh, I'm more, I work in an infrastructure environment, more or less. I work at a hosting company. I work at two hosting companies, actually. Combell and Sentia, part of the same group, and we're market leader in Belgium, the Netherlands, and Denmark, and I'm a technical evangelist there. So I try to solve the issue on how code ends up on infrastructure. That's the big one, right? Because you can have your servers and you can have your code, but how do you make these things work fine? And that's one of the big things that hosting is all about. And being in the PHP community brought me all the necessary ideas to figure that out. And I built up a relationship with various community members. And here I am now back in London later this week. Awesome. And so how did you become a technical evangelist then? Are you primarily like a developer background then that slowly moved into this role? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I graduated from college in 2004. I had a, a lot of development there. I was looking for a job and I ended up on the radar of Combell and they hired me. And there's two reasons why they hired me particularly. A, because I could program PHP, and B, because I was bilingual as well. Not, not fully bilingual, but I spoke a decent amount of French as well, which is, in, a, in the bilingual country that Belgium is, quite an asset. So I started there as a support engineer and did that for over six years. But I applied my development background to my day-to-day. -day. And as the hosting environment and the hosting industry evolved, that proved to be an asset because uh, it's no longer about... The metal, the bare metal, no one cares about that. It's about installing stacks, having platforms, and making sure that people have reliable code, have scalable code, have secure code, all that kind of stuff. And I, I noticed from having these conversations, because I love technology, but I also love people. And I love these interactions with people. And learning for, from them or, or trying to solve their issues was one of my passions. And uh, gradually, I figured out that the role I had wasn't really the most efficient one. I loved... Uh, Talking about problems, learning about problems, but in a, in a support context, customer support context, that's a one-to-one. -one. You solve a problem or you listen to a person's problem, and at the end of the conversation, it's done. And I figured, why not broadcast these ideas? So over the years, I've, I've built up a little bit of expertise and a domain of interest. And instead of doing this constantly on a one-to-one, -one, I said, I want to go out there. I want to speak to people. I want to do presentations. I want to blog. I want to vlog. I want to do this in a broader context. And I've been doing it for almost seven years now. 
really admirable kind of you know to do that to kind of you know to as you say to help on a higher like a larger wider scale than just a one-to-one well the admirable part is not really from my end but from my employer's end (laughs) when i started out we're just seven people and now our our entire group or the groups that we that we own have more than uh, 700 full-time employees so at the early stages it was quite a, a risk and an adventure from their end to pull me away from my team lead role in in customer services and say, hey, we're going to go make sure that this guy could look at the ecosystems, the various ecosystems that are of interest to us, talk to these people, let him do R&D, let him do his blogs, his vlogs, and his talks. And it panned out quite well. And after, I think, a period of four years, we, we, we were reaping the fruits of that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And so you get on everyone's radar and, you know, these talks and stuff. And, and speaking about a talk then, so yeah, as you mentioned, so you're going to be coming back to the UK, uh, PHP UK conferences in, in a couple of days. Uh, and you've got a talk called Build, Provision and Deploy in the Cloud with Packer, Anstable and Terraform. And like I said earlier, you know, these technologies, these this kind of ideology is definitely on my radar at the moment. I'm just wondering, would you mind maybe telling us a little bit about the actual presentation? Maybe I'll, I'll just put it, I'll tell a tale, a small one. So uh, everyone talks about the cloud and I have to do lots of presentations about the cloud as well. And we always end up, or the most marketeers that do cloud presentations end up talking about SaaS, PaaS, IaaS, about the public part, private part, but they never talk what you actually could do with it. And the internet has evolved in such a way that meeting the requirements from the business end, from society in general, because they're all over the internet, and from technology, if you mix those up, you end up needing quite a bit of automation to get that infrastructure flowing because people are always on the internet. They're on the internet all, all, everywhere. So thanks to mobile phones, we now have constant peaks and you need to be able to deal with that. And I figured out how can you do that? Because in our hosting group, we have the traditional VMware approach. We have OpenStack systems. One of our divisions does uh, automation based on AWS. And I tried to look for the specific automation tools. And I figured that the lovely people at HashiCorp, people who built tools that your audience might know, like Vagrant, that they also have a tool called Packer, have a tool called Terraform. And uh, I started experimenting with that. And noticed that you can do that in a cloud agnostic or a vendor agnostic way. And that was a major plus to me. Like, okay, I could define something in, in an infrastructure as code kind of style. So that means you just write some plain text files, put some config in there, and you run it, and the end result is that you boot up an entire stack of resources that you can manage and are a bit intertwined. You have a, you might have Amazon resources, some VMware resources, and you can mix and match them all together. And that I found fascinating. And that made me look into it more and experiment with it. And I submitted it to PHP UK, and they gladly accepted it. The HashiCorp are just doing some amazing things around all of this. Um, it, it's absolutely crazy how much they pump out. Like you, you, you know, especially back in the day, you would kind of just think, "Oh, it's Vagrant," but like you say now, Terraform and and Packer. And it's interesting with Terraform actually, because um, some people may kind of construe it like as just a cloud formation kind of in the AWS world kind of alternative, but it's so much more. Yeah, but a funny thing about the HashiCorp folks is that they do these roadshows or these events. And I went to the European one. And ironically enough, it's in the very same venue on the very same stage where I'm about to speak in a couple of days. So I was there last year with a, with a bunch of colleagues. And they released yet another product called Nomad, which could be an alternative for not really a one-on-one alternative for Kubernetes, but they're, they're always following up on what's hot and what's new. And it's a sort of workload distribution system. So time and again, they figure out the needs of the internet and try to solve that problem their own way, but without focusing on a single implementation. And that I like. 
And that's something that caught my eye on Terraform as well, because it's, it's not just a way to interact with CloudFormation in terms of AWS or with Heat, if you look at it from an OpenStack perspective. They don't do that. They don't really interact with those products. They build a competing product, and the only thing they do is interact with APIs from Amazon. So that's, that's the main, that's an important difference. Because some people would think, oh, they're just leveraging CloudFormation. No, 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 they're not. What they're doing is they're keeping track of local state in files by default. There's also remote state backends. And when you run Terraform, which is essentially just a compiled Go file or a set of Go files compiled into a single binary, when you run that, it connects to the infrastructure side, let's say to AWS. It figures out what's going on there, and it compares it to the definitions in your main.tf file, so your Terraform files. And if there's a distinction, it will write that in local state and suggest that a change occurs. And that change could be a creation, a deletion, an inline update, or a replacement of a resource. So it's very much powerful in that way that it tries to anticipate what needs to happen and what the consequences are of that work. And state is everything in Terraform. And as, as, as much I've ex- as I've examined it, the more, I wouldn't say I fell in love with it, but the more I appreciate it its approach in just stating out the differences because cloud environments, things that live on, it's, it's not static, right? Infrastructure grows, infrastructure needs to be torn down, replacements need to happen. You know, it's knowing how we got to that state. It'd be interesting maybe to rewind a little bit. And you did mention infrastructure as code and really kind of this movement around, you know, trying to codify all of this kind of work. Could you maybe go into a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, because Terraform is not the only tool we need. There's uh, one piece of technology that I, two pieces of technology that I didn't mention, uh, primarily the Ansible part, because Ansible is a configuration management system similar to Puppet and Chef and SaltStack and CF Engine and all Plenty of options. <laughs> Plenty of options. I just went to Config Management Camp in Belgium and I saw all the project leads of those projects presenting about the future and how they see Config Management. And uh, their message was we're not done yet, so there's still a lot to happen. And what I find particularly interesting, we went for, uh, we just went for uh, Ansible because it's very simple. It's SSH-based. It doesn't require an agent. It just calls commands over SSH. It's super simple to to organize because it's just what we YAML files, YML files, and just describe what you need, which packages need to be installed, what variables need to be set, maybe parse a template, synchronize a file. And we automate internally here at Combell and at Sentia our, our infrastructure as well with that. So, uh, and the cool thing about infrastructure as code from a configuration management standpoint is that you try to organize this information functionally. So what you could be doing is installing an Nginx server or installing a PHP FPM runtime. Well, all of that you can do manually, but it makes much more sense to organize that in modules and have parametrized configurable modules. So let's say you want to install an Nginx, well, you might have an Ansible role if you come from the Puppet world, that would be a module. If you come from uh, from the, the Chef world, that will probably be, correct me if I'm wrong, a recipe. So all these things you modularize and uh, you abstract. And when you say, I want to install an Nginx, you just register the Nginx role and all the default settings are set. You want to extend those, well, then you'll have variable files that you can use for that. And in my context, in the presentation I'm doing, I'm just bootstrapping that all from another tool I forgot to mention, Packer. And Packer is a sort of aid, uh, a tool and a utility that helps you bootstrap all these environments. Because usually it all starts in, a, in any cloud environment from a, a VM image, sort of pre-baked image. 
And you can go for the, the typical, we, we standardize on Debian. You could say, I'm going to set up some Debian stuff and then run Ansible afterwards. Just for the sake of showcasing Packer, I went for, for the more hip thing and the more immutable style thing. And I just baked a custom image, rolled some Ansible on that, synchronized my application code. And in Terraform, I'm basically bootstrapping custom Amazon AMIs that already contain the full stack and my application code. So that's pretty much, to me, what infrastructure as code means. It's just having files that are in your Git repository, maybe aligned with your application code. Just describe what you need. Which VM image do you need? How will these nodes be forked? How will they be booted up? Is there other kinds of infrastructure needed, like load balancers or a, a private network, subnet information, you name it? You can all describe that in a very easy-to-read format. And then as a developer, because sysadmins or ops people are in slowly becoming developers because of infrastructure as code, you modularize it. Maybe you share certain modules throughout your organization for reuse, and then it's just simple. You just load the module, use an AMI, or maybe do Ansible or, or Puppet runs afterwards, and all of it returns in disposable stacks, reusable stacks even, uh, reproducible stacks, like uh, you build a stack for desk, one for test, one for staging, one for QA, one for production. And there's no real trade-off. You just built a full stack and test your code on there. It's interesting because, you know, the Ansible's, the, the puppets of the world, you know, this kind of declarative format of being able to define server configurations has been around for a while now. And, you know, it's really kind of changed the way we think of it. And it has changed internally as well because it used to be all the chef versus puppet battle. But... Uh, there's now, a, I would say, a third dog in the race, but there's more than <laughs> it's three. a three-headed dog and now. It's, yeah, and I went to, we did a sort of show of hands, and most people at Configuration Management Camp did focus on Ansible. Ansible seemed to be the winner right now because of its simplicity and, and its growing community. Not to take anything away from Puppet and Chev, right? Not to take anything away from these communities. They've been stable, and they've been existing way longer than Ansible. But I think it's the typical... Uh, standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing yeah it's constantly you know everyone's innovating and kind of building on top of competing and, and competition like this is great this is what you need you know to be able to get the best product um and you know that what's better than having three different competing products that do it a little bit different obviously i suppose then for people getting into it they need to like kind of maybe you know kind of invest some time into working out which solution works best for them at, the, at this point point. and the cool thing about open source is that i've been talking about modules and how you could uh, like compact a lot of logic, a lot of functionality into more abstract forms of configuration. I like that as well, because why would you figure out how to install an Nginx server if, if thousands of other people have done it already and a couple of dozens have collaborated and built a module on, that you can just download on GitHub that is just readily available and that is supported by communities. So basically there's a, a, a growing community within that, not just a community that builds Ansible, but the community that builds Ansible uh, roles or, or from the, the context of Puppet, Puppet modules, it's all out there. And it really speeds up your workflow. And that is definitely a message towards the audience here. If you haven't tried it, it's not that hard as you think. There's probably a module for that. It'll make your life a lot easier. Going back to in the day, you know, when we had these, the concept of like snowflake servers, where it was just, you know, we'd manually install things, you'd do an app get, you'd install that, you'd configure, tweak that configuration file just a little bit. And you'd have maybe these, all these different servers that have slightly different configurations. Now, all that knowledge, all those different changes and stuff, you know, it's very hard to kind of reproduce that. And, you know, this is what the declarative kind of, you know, let's, you know, put the, put this infrastructure in code, everything you have to do to make that server up 
define it. And then you get the concept of like Phoenix servers where, you know, you're able to essentially to tear this down because, you know, these servers that you're too scared to kind of change or get away from because you don't quite know how the configuration works, it completely goes away. You're kind of open to this fact now that I can tear the whole, you know, stack down. I can build it back up with this configuration. And then moving on, for, you know, to then Terraform. I mean, that just adds in a world of possibilities for nearly anything. Like you can do things for Datadog, Pager Duty, all this stuff around, you know, the kind of infrastructure itself. And it's not that hard to write your own Terraform plugins if you're if you're stuck on a component that you don't really find or you want to in, include that in your Terraform stack. It's just a, a reasonably simple Go wrapper. So you can write your own provider and customly bootstrap it. It's entirely possible. Or you could share them because uh, the people at HashiCorp have a, a registry online where you could register uh, Terraform providers or modules even. So it's quite easy. Even on that in, in that respect, there's a sharing culture. But to get back on the snowflake part, like uh, working in a hosting environment uh, within the, the context of Belgium, which isn't that big of a country, we have a lot of snowflake servers. And that is not by design, but just a consequence of what people take. We have tens of thousands of customers in the Benelux area, and some of them have a single VM that they take. And it has very specific needs. And we do automation even prior to doing configuration management. We had Pixie boot, we have VM clones, we had all that available. But every single client has its own way of doing things. So the way, the way we changed this is didn't, we didn't automate for every single use case. We try to figure out what the baseline is here and maybe even guide our customers toward best practices. Instead of letting them use all their exotic components, we, we talk to them and say, why don't you use this mainstream component or why don't you standardize on this? And now we're seeing it evolve. And instead of just looking at the client and asking, what do you want? We, we, we tend to provide a baseline and that is heavily automated using Ansible at our end. So it's, it's, all, it's not always that black or white. Like there, there's lots of gray areas and being in the hosting industry, I could tell you firsthand that uh, there's a lot of individual small servers, but we're trying to get rid of that. And when we talk about PHP stacks, there's best practices out there, what you should do best. And we're trying to automate for those use cases. Um, you know, it's this whole idea of, you know, like being able to configure it and declare it. But as you say, you've got previous stacks and snowflakes and things in the past that you still have to kind of slowly move over. And have you found that then to be like kind of taking a portion of it and moving it over or starting fresh on complete, you know, how, do you ta how have you tackled that in the past? Well, I would say if there's no issue, we won't really import them in that new way of working because... For a lot of clients of ours, this is just a black box. They order hosting with us and they order or they're looking for a way to, to find a stable solution for their application. And if we change something, they haven't really, really care about that. That doesn't really bother them. So if there's no big change from there and required, we just avoid this. Uh, but for a lot of new clients, it, it is attractive to hear about those things. And it's even part of the marketing and the sales pitches. Hey, we can automate this. We can use Terraform. We can use Ansible. We can use all these other things as uh, depending on the product you, you buy from us. And we, we sell it as well. But from for older clients, it doesn't really matter because some of these clients are, are not really planning to do much changes. They just want to ride the wave they're currently riding and, and keep it going. But as soon as they have a requirement change and they contact us, then that might result in, hey, instead of trying to upgrade those servers of yours, why don't we set up a bunch of new VMs and just migrate the data and, and start out fresh? Yeah, and work out from a baseline kind of what we need on it. And I think that's, 
and, and it's been the ability to, you know, which you say with the modules and stuff to be able to pick and choose bits, you know, it actually makes your life easier than going through. And I suppose it's that whole idea that, you know, it is the hacker mentality or the developer mentality. Why should I have to manually do these things every so every time, you know, or have like a document? I could just write a script that does that. You know, we've done it in the bash days and everything. And it's really just expanding that to everything with Packer. And it'd be really interesting to maybe go, you know, you mentioned kind of that this deals with the images and stuff like that. around, And then it kind of moves you into this whole idea of creating an image that you just run and it's a mutable server. Could, could, would you mind maybe explaining that a little bit? Well, just, that's just an experiment of mine, and that's what we see in our AWS division that they use Packer for that. But it is not the sole answer to the problem, right? Immutability is, is cool in theory, and it, it works well if, if, if most of it is static. And yes, uh, if you do lots of deployments, there will be lots of new images that will be baked, and that will require a lot of new infrastructure. So uh, I, I haven't seen it from our end because our context is a bit smaller than what's happening in the UK, what's happening in the US, uh, live in a smaller territory. These use cases are quite simple. People don't do that much deployments where we're at. Uh, we have some uh, clients that do a lot of deployments. And sometimes it, it's, it's better to not use these immutable systems, but just say, hey, we have infrastructure running. And if the change is a simple one, like deploying new code, it, it, it might be easier just to update them instead of making fresh images. But it depends on the client. Like we have lots of clients who radically go for the immutable setup. That means never change anything on the server. If a change is required, we'll just boot a new server. And that works well with disposable, stack, disposable stacks, more or less for our AWS and our OpenStack environment. But on our VMware cloud, a lot of people still like the fact that these VMs are stable and not immutable. They're just there. If something needs to change, well, then we'll, we'll change it. Other people go for stability as well. That's a more conservative approach, but it's still out there, that mindset. And we have very good experiences with that mindset as well, if you can manage it. So we're not planning to change a winning team on that. But if the requirements of the client require us to have a more immutable setup, well, yes, then we'll go for it. So again, it's not that black and white again. We have clients who want it. We have clients who don't. But we have that mindset ready but it's just a matter of finding the right fit. Because the thing about uh, we're developers, right? And we're, we're intrigued by shiny stuff. <laughs> well, the next cool thing. Everything that, the next cool thing. And then we're, we talk to our manager and say, we're going to throw everything away because we found this new thing. It will change our lives. It will make everything better. And then 10 years later, you just said, we're just being silly and it's just constantly making the same errors, right? But if you go back and have, you can look back at what you did a decade ago, you'll say, oh, this is just history repeating itself, which is basically the summary of, of modern-day IT, history repeating itself, but with a, with a new A context. new twist. That's all it is, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Because that's what all these oldies do, right? Oh, you're, you're, you're doing these container things, or oh, you're doing CICD or the agile mounts. It's just centralization, decentralization, centralization, and it's just waves that pass by. It's cyclical. It's very funny. It is when you look at it, you know, kind of from a bird's eye view, you can really see these patterns, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. It's just retro, right? And it happens in all walks of life. That's fashion as well. Like uh, even naming, I see a lot of completely off topic, of course, like the, the names that parents give their children are these days, especially in Belgium, are like the names that our grandparents had. Like, like 10 years ago, you'd say, oh, that's an old fashioned name. But now it's hip again to use those old names. I think in all walks of life, people just go retro all the way. 
and they think they're doing it differently. But really, you just need yeah. to kind of look at it. History is a very good indicator for what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't that bad. Like, we're, we take the good bits of history. We don't take the crappy bits. We've, we've evolved and some stuff works. And as the context changes, and I do a lot of presentations towards non-technical people about the cloud. And I try to keep it a bit fluffy to keep them interested. Uh, but I always try to tell the truth. I, I take away the, the marketing mumbo jumbo. But I, I tell them that the internet evolves constantly. And I always ask the same question to people. What did you do on the internet in 1997? Maybe I should ask you that question, Ed. What did you do on the internet in 1997? Well, in 1997, I was very young. So I was probably just getting on. So it would just be looking at AOL's homepage. Yeah, I was, I was 12 years old, I guess, or 13 years old. Uh, and yeah, AOL. I did a bit of chatting and I went to these GeoCities websites. I went to forums. Exactly. And now look at it. Now we put pretty much every application possible onto it. Where we'd look at it as a client side app. You know, now it's everything's in the cloud. Infinity, like the amount of data is, you know, endless and all this kind of concepts that just blow our mind. Yeah, indeed. And back in the day, I, I said, I'm going on the internet. I said, Mom, I'm going on the internet. We don't use these terms anymore. Going on the, no one goes on the internet anymore. It's just out. Yeah, it's not a session anymore. It's just a, con, well, no, it's a consistent session. You just, you are always present. Yes, indeed. And that, that, that changed. And, and that changed the requirements of the internet as well. And I think where we are right now, talk about the cyclical aspect, that just doesn't happen randomly. There's, there's reasons to it. We now reach the stage where everyone is constantly on the internet using mobile phones, maybe your fridge is even connected to the internet, and these all request data points. And you have heavy saturation on the infrastructure end, and you f- have to figure out a way to cope with like spikes, increasing demand, a changing technology stack, and uh, from all ends, right? So the infrastructure people need to keep up with all the requests and all the spikes that are coming. But at the same time, business is forced to create new functionality quite rapidly. So from a developer's end, everything changes as well. And those two need to coexist. So the stacks need to be able to keep up with the applications and so on and so forth. Deployments are happening more, happening more frequently. The, the stakes are higher. And all of that still needs to be managed by people who more or less have the same job or job title as 10 or, or 20 years ago. Developer, systems administrator, you name it. That's it. And it's kind of, you know, try, as you say, providing tooling and kind of philosophies and, and ideas around it to get there. And you say, you know, the fact that, you know, releases happen, you know, I mean, people, you know, large websites pushing out hourly different changes and stuff, being able to easily roll back these changes, be able to, as you say, like kind of the immutable server way, you know, being able to push this out, ensure that it's exactly that. All right. To, you know, just kill it. I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, back in the day with just servers, hardware, real, bare, you know, bare metal, the concept of being able just to discard that was just isn't available. Like now we've got this virtualized world where you really are in, on this abstract level being able to discard a whole server setup every hour, you know, with a different deploy. It's, it's absolutely insane. But then again, there's a new cycle coming in there. You talk about bare metal. <laughs> I always find that funny, bare metal. I always think of a bear using the metal <laughs> horn, like a, a metalhead bear. Uh, but metal, bare metal is coming back, I guess. Uh, because we have layer upon layer upon layer to have a, a really concrete example. Let's say you fire up some VMs, a bunch of VMs, and you install Kubernetes on there, which is very much in hype territory as well, to launch some Docker containers on this using a service mesh. We have different layers of abstraction, maybe a bit too many. And I see people using bare metal servers to install Kubernetes because Kubernetes is sort of the virtualization platform. Not saying that virtualization or Kubernetes are the same things. But I see people taking away that extra level of abstraction that is not required. 
And you have these companies that do bare metal as a service as well. Absolutely. And it's, you know, this, as you say, and I mean, it's funny now you say even with like AWS providing, you know, bare metal instances, because you want to be able to get to the actual performance. Uh, it's, it, I think, you know, with the server and the cloud, it's that kind of paying per, I mean, that's another thing, you know, paying per minute, paying per millisecond per second, uh, this idea that you're able just to have compute when you need it for as however long you want, and however much you want. Yeah, and I, I have a bit of a, a contrasting vision on that because I, I solidly believe in that idea. There's no way you could deny that these things are out there. But a lot of people tend to oversimplify it. Like working with dynamic capacity is, is very hard. And instead of trying to figure out the best way to optimize for that, sometimes we, we go the other way. Because a lot of people say, yeah, we need a, we, we probably have heavy load. And when that happens, we need extra capacity. But extra Capacity is more from a curing point of view. Maybe you want to touch on the reasons why you need this capacity. Maybe your application is just using too much resources, is not optimized for that. So from our end, we, although we're a hosting company, I work at a hosting company, our, it's not our goal to, to sell you too much hardware because that's just the easy way out and that's not the most efficient way. We focus heavily on optimizing your stack. Maybe you need to add a level of caching and if you cache, you don't always need to have that footprint on your infrastructure. And maybe that could make it cheaper. Because uh, despite all the promises that the cloud makes on uh, making it cheaper and having uh, you pay by the hour, I think if you have big fat stacks on, on, on Amazon that run constantly, it is rather expensive. A lot more expensive than just buying your own servers. There you go. Well, buying makes you part of the problem. Uh, as well so maybe we, we're primarily a managed hosting company so we have lots of clients who just rent vms using vmware because they're very stable and uh, that might sound a bit old school and, and very contradictory to what i'm telling right now but it is not because we're using it all the time and terraform has a vmware provider as well see that that is an interesting thing actually i'll oh, sorry i was to say with terraform so you use a host of different providers how, how have you found that because you know it's this whole idea and, and it is that beauty of like oh yeah you've got one tool for everything it would be interesting like as a real use case kind of how you've kind of felt that and any gotchas or pitfalls with it well uh it is not always that compatible it's a, it's a single tool and it's a single project and there's a simple and single way of keeping track of state but the descriptions the definitions tend to differ quite a bit and that's all based on the on the topology of, of what you're using. I think setting up an OpenStack or an AWS has lots of similarities. But when then you look back at the API that VMware exposes, and that's entirely different because uh, the the fire and forget kind of approach and having servers with an hour uptime and then replacing them is very much in the realm of what AWS does. But VMware has an entirely different approach. In AWS, it's not about the VM. It's about the totality of all VMs that form one single stack. Whereas VMware says, we focus on highly reliable VM VMs. It's not an instance. It's an actual virtual machine with a full-on hypervisor that is battle-proof. And quite honestly, we, we still rely a lot on VMware and those more traditionally seeming platforms such as a NetApp, such as VMware, such as Cisco products, all these Things that seem quite old school are really battle-proof. It's just a matter of finding the ideal way of doing this. Uh, you have the requirements of the client, of course. What does this person need in terms of elasticity? A lot of people think they want the full-on, fully auto-scalable thing, but in reality, they don't. Uh, even the cost of setting up such a, such a thing and describing how that, that's just a development trajectory, I guess, 
right? It's, it works with sprints, it comes with planning. Infrastructure as code is now a, a development project, essentially. And all the metrics that you need and all these things you need to tune and tweak to be able to make sure that the auto-scalability plan that you've built is tailored to the needs of that client. And like you say, even if you need it, because this is another thing, because of these hot, shiny new things, it is that whole idea of do I actually need you know, that ability or can I live without it, live within you know, constraints and work a design around it? Well, what we notice is especially, I always put that as a disclaimer, in our territory, in Belgium and the Netherlands, where we primarily operate, businesses are, territory isn't that big. In Belgium, there's 11 million people. It's not like the US, right? So if people, and it's a cultural thing, right? When mostly you have, when you operate in Belgium, you probably have Belgian clients. There aren't that many that will go to your page at the same time, except when you're more in an international context. So in a lot of cases, people could deal with some really well-equipped, pretty fat-looking VMware servers. A couple of them is enough. And we use similar tools. You can use Packer and Ansible and Terraform. We use the same stack. And stick Varnish in front of it and you're uh, happy. Yeah, like I could tell you that I'm using Varnish on a daily basis for that. That's such a problem solver. And that's the reverse approach instead of, having throwing infrastructure at the problem, which is translated to, to the client's end as just throwing money at the problem, right? Essentially, well, we just try to do it the other way and figure out if we can have the same functionality but with less infrastructure by taking care of the root cause, and that is IO, RAM, CPU, network. And Varnish is a great tool to, to just cash that away. You know, you mentioned, so we've got Ansible, we've got Terraform, we've got Packer in it, and it is becoming more of a developer-centric kind of mindset. And along with that is good, solid testing. When you're in like the kind of, uh, you know, manual world, you know, you're just installing these things manually, you're running these commands and stuff, and there's no real automation around it. There's no real kind of testing other than what you'll do to say, oh, is it running? And it's like, oh, yeah, some monitoring metrics may say it is. Um, but that's all in a live or development kind of staging, product, you know, kind of environment. How do you go around testing and uh, the, the automated testing, in fact, you know, these kind of different services, different tooling? Well, well, that's kind of hard to do. You have unit testing tools for every single configuration management system. It's out there. But having those components will only test the individual things. But you probably want an, a fully automated integration test. But that makes it a lot harder because then it's no longer just those components from our end, but how they interact with the end user's code. That makes it a lot more difficult. And then you need to essentially shove the question back to the client and say, do you have automated integration tests for your application that tie in with our automation? So you said you want an Nginx server with PHP 7.2, for example, and these vhosts need to be available. The end result is a, a functional test, an integration test, a test the functionality of the client. If they don't have that, we can't really provide that. We can provide basic, simple automation tests, but that doesn't cover the use case of the client. And we heavily rely for every single bit on proper testing from the client's end because clients don't buy hosting for the sake of hosting. They just want a solid end product, which is their application. And my vision on that is, or what I've noticed in my experience, is that a lot of clients don't focus that much on testing. Although it's heavily advocated in the community, a lot of people just don't do it. The integration test is then our monitoring system notifying when things are up or down. Yeah, not, not, not that no business logic is actually being tested. So it could be up, but doing the completely you know, wrong thing. Yeah, doing the completely wrong thing. And there's so much intricacies to, uh, to an application by an end user. Because we don't work, it's not, it's not project-based from our end where we sit along and build the application as well. The applications are 
often already developed before they even contact the hosting company. So I'm saying that my job is to deal with other people's shitty code. That's a bit disrespectful, of course. But if you boil it down, that's essentially what it is. People developed it in such a way. Some applications are really beautifully developed. Other people just focus on getting the features out there and they have to deal with it. And dealing it is, with, is, is what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like the Phoenix Project, the book I've been recently reading, which is I highly recommend. And it's that idea around it, you know, where operations will just... Is that book just... from Gene Kim? Is that Gene Kim's book? Yes, Gene's Kim book. Very rec- it's a very good book, isn't it? Well, I haven't read it, but I've seen that cover and I know Gene Kim wrote it. Highly recommend it. Really interesting read about kind of, you know, this this kind of friction between development and operations. And, you know, this idea now of DevOps, and then you've got the idea of like SRE, site reliability engineering and stuff. And it's really trying to, you know, what is the most important thing? It's like the fact of getting the, the, the code to the client that works uh, the way it should it is intended to and there's two sides of the coin of you know being able to actually write the code but then actually be able to run the code and you know running the code as you say you know running the shitty code you know it could i hypothetically be in that i have to restart the machine every hour just to keep it running because you know maybe there's like memory leaks and stuff if you're looking at you know from that kind of level it's very much kind of you know, how do you go about doing that and that devops mentality is definitely part of it and i know gene kim from the devops scene uh because luckily enough for us Belgians, the, the term DevOps was coined by a Belgian guy. And that community, I wouldn't say it was centered around what happens in Belgium, but a lot of the, a lot of the people, the, the key players in the DevOps community are Belgians. And I went to the DevOps days and I thought when I would go to these events that I would learn technical things. But in essence, it's just about culture. And I think that Phoenix Project book, although I haven't read it, I expect it to be more about culture because the problems we're facing in IT aren't always technical problems. It's usually a problem of, of accountability, of communication, of empathy. And I think if, if, if I remember correctly, Patrick, the guy who coined the term, DevOps said, DevOps is not dev versus ops. It was just an implementation of the, the problems that were occurring at that time. It's just empathy. DevOps is empathy. That's so true. And kind of, you know, how, how do you fit, like, because obviously the word DevOps does get banded about now quite a bit, and it is a very buzzy word. Uh, oh, yeah. Along with SRE now, it's like these buzzy words and stuff. And as you say, the idea really is, stems down to empathy between, you know, the developer, you, and also actually the client that's going to be using it. <laughs> I hate to tell you, but uh, a lot of people use DevOps in a way that the DevOps community really makes them cringe, because for them, it's about the movement and about the cultural ideas where companies try to label people and make, turn them into DevOps engineers or, or create a DevOps certification program. And just the sheer idea of that makes them really shiver. Could, would you mind actually explaining kind of what actually then is DevOps? Like what is the, the vision behind it maybe for the audience? Well, uh, a lot of people, well, I hope I don't misrepresent them and misquote them. So this is how I understood it by going to DevOps Days events and going to other events where that DevOps community is, is there. In my vision, it was at a given point in time, developers needed to get their stuff out there more quickly, and they adopted the agile mentality. But because there were so many uh, iterations to the problem, there were more deployments, and deployments were very tricky. That was one of the key aspects that needed to be covered. And then the people in the, the ops community said, okay, we need to adopt that agile mindset as well, and we'll call it DevOps. Just being able to to handle those changes quite rapidly. And those changes were primarily culture, but there were tooling. So uh, an acronym that is used is CAMS in a lot of cases, culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. And that really, for me personally, that that encapsulated, encapsulated being able to work with different teams, multidisciplinary teams, 
automating stuff so that you avoid those human problems, measuring so that you know what's going on and sharing to share what you've learned uh, about these situations and enrich your teams. And what the DevOps people say is that DevOps is not just developers versus operation people, but you need to extrapolate this to your entire organization. Maybe your finance department needs to be DevOps. Maybe your HR department needs to be DevOps, even your marketing people. If you all play for the same team and you're all the stakeholders, I think you will have a much better result. Maybe if you're, let's say you're a, a, a software as a service company and the product you sell and the, the reason why you hire people is to ship out that product. Well, then everyone needs to be on board and share the same values and be in the loop about certain problems. I think if I understood the message by Patrick and Chris and all the other people in the DevOps community correctly, I think empathy and making or making the technical problems collide with human problems and trying to solve that, if you do that in a good way, I think that's DevOps. Now, there's another side to the coin as well, because DevOps is so often used, I think, although the idea was different, people need to accept in the DevOps communities that the misused term really represents something as well. Like if you call someone a DevOps engineer, they will cringe. But nowadays people, maybe that's site reliability engineering, I don't know. Those are like the glue people, the people who aren't 100% dev or 100% ops that sit in the middle and speak both languages. Those people are called DevOps people. And I know it's not intended that way, but the reality is that a lot of companies do it. And maybe we need to accept that as well. That well, it's like the agile movement and agile. Yeah. Uh, you know, you bring that in. That's been banded around for so many different yeah. things from the actual, you know, f- completely diverse from the an- agile manifesto and kind of it's a real vision. But we know what it means nowadays. And even if we misuse the term, a lot of people know what it means or what it represents. And that's more than maybe something we need to accept culturally that this name gets adopted and banded around, as you say. I accept it. I accept those changes. And maybe what we have now is not what these founders had envisioned. That's just the reality of the internet. But I suppose meaning of something is only what the general consensus believe it to be, isn't it? Absolutely. So I suppose it becomes that because the fact that more people believe that. Yeah, and and even with the internet. uh, The internet, like Tim Berners-Lee, was highly uh, lauded for for what he did. But his, his partner in crime was a Belgian guy. I guess, and if I understood the anecdote correctly, the, 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 the sheer concept, concept of the internet was just something scientific. And now it's out there, and it's, it's, it's like they created a monster. And I'm not sure if the person who helped invent it, I think it's Roger Calliot, I guess, the guy, the, the, the sidekick of, of Tim Berners-Lee was called. The Belgian guy said, I'm a bit afraid of what the internet has become. It, it's completely different as the way we envisioned it back in the day. And it's because they can't control it, because obviously it's gone. Can't control it. That's it. Yeah, and same with these DevOps terms and these Agile terms and everything that happens on the internet these days. And it would be really interesting, actually, kind of sidestepping a little bit. And you did mention it, you know, like Kubernetes and containers and stuff. Um, this kind of mindset with Ansible, Terraform, Packer and things, can these be applied to containers as well? Have you found that? Definitely, because uh, I see things are happening so rapidly. So what we did, and that's a, eventually that's, that cyclical aspect will come back. So we said we're going to write... Uh, rather complicated configuration management files and organize them in modules and so. And then the Docker movement comes and says, we're going to tear everything up in little independent microservices. And your Docker file will be just really simple and it will just run a couple of bash scripts, right? That's, we've evolved that way. Like, okay, everything you know about these configuration management systems, let's forget that for a while and focus 
back on the simple bash shells, bash shell script. And now we're entering that cyclical aspect where people say, that was what I understood from going to configuration management campaign here in Ghent in Belgium. They said, it's going to come around again. You will need those tools again to run them on your containers. Because just running shell scripts won't cut it, I guess. Maybe you have some more complicated logic that you want to encapsulate in playbooks or roles or modules or whatever you name it. So I believe that all these tools will come back. And Packer already has a, a Docker provider. Although my preference is to use Docker files locally, I do believe that you could use Ansible to provision those to a desired state and then just push them to a, a system like Kubernetes. Everything's changing, but everything goes back and it and it kind of takes, you know, it kind of simplifies it again to make it complex in a different way. As you say, going back to bash scripts, it's like, well, that was back in the day, uh, but it's kind of, you know, moving slowly moving towards you know and, and you know it's moving towards and, and the idea of the the main goal of this is to make it easier to ship stuff to uh, you know that's going to provide business value that's going to improve it for the clients you said it right there business value i think uh, we're techies and we think about problems from our own perspective but the end result needs to have business value or if you look at it for from a broader perspective adoption in society so mostly it's business that drives it so at the end of the road, if business could sell it, we've done a good job. Absolutely, man. And Taste, as I say, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, I, and I hope everything goes well in the UK conference uh, talk. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting talk you're going to do. Sadly, I won't be able to make it, but I'm sure I'll definitely check it out in the videos if they're available. They'll, they'll record it, so it will be online. And uh, I did a couple of test runs already. Pity I didn't record it for you, but uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> That, that's awesome man i say thank you so much man and we'll definitely have to have you on again uh you know when you when you next talk especially talk about like varnish and stuff because that's something we never did, even touched on and that's something you're very hot on yeah no that's a topic i'm super passionate about i wrote a book about i'm doing tons of presentations about but the reason why i'm doing focusing more on cloud automation a because it's super relevant to the context from from my profession and and the company i work at but i've done also because i don't want to be considered the varnish guy because a lot of people say oh taste oh yeah that's that guy that varnish dude well, yes, I do love Varnish and I've done a ton of stuff with Varnish and I work with Varnish nearly on a daily basis. But you want but to I'm do more, more exactly. <laughs> yes. And maybe that's a, a, second, a, a second meeting of ours we'll do and maybe a second podcast. But for now, uh, it's all focused about Terraform, Ansible and Packer for my upcoming presentation uh, this Thursday at uh, the brewery in London. Awesome, man. Enjoy yourself in London. And uh, well, yeah, we we'll definitely have to put one in the books then for to talk about Varnish. What's not alike in London? Uh, I love uh, the UK has always been good to me as a, as a speaker. So I'm always super stoked and super excited to go to the UK because the vibe in the room, I don't know how to explain it, is very enthusiastic. And UK is my, my favorite audience. So I'm already looking forward to standing there up on stage and having uh, British uh, people there and have a good time. Hope you're there. If you're listening to the podcast and you're coming, let's have some fun. Uh, don't hesitate to heckle me on stage oh man well thank you so much again dude and uh, audience this has been another great episode and we'll speak to you again next week goodbye cheers folks bye-bye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com or follow us on twitter at the number three devs and a maybe